0: Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Today I want to talk about one of the writer's great uh, problems, Rejection, Uh, you know, and I want to talk specifically about how to deal with rejection uh, by reframing rejection. Uh, So, if you're familiar with psychology, you'll know that reframing is a specific uh, psychological technique um, that is useful in uh, in cognitive behavioral therapies, specifically. Um, But putting all that academia academic jargon aside. Uh, Simply put, uh, I think the way to approach rejection, the way to understand rejection, the way to get comfortable with rejection, because as a writer, you really do need to get comfortable with rejection. Uh, There's a few techniques you can use. Uh, One is simply exposure. So you just send a lot of things out. You get a lot of rejections. You just gather rejection until it stops bothering you so much uh, because you've been exposed to it. You're exposing yourself to it over and over again. It maybe never gets better um, in the sense that you don't enjoy it, <laughs> but it gets better insofar as you can deal with it more readily. You know it's not the end of the world. It's you know negative experience, but uh, you don't necessarily get, be, get crushed by it. Whereas I think it's very easy to have rejection crush you, especially when you're starting out. And you're not used to rejection. Uh, and your everyday experience uh, maybe isn't necessarily one of rejection um, on the other hand uh, I think so that's fine I mean, and, and sometimes you'll we'll hear writers tell stories about that you know Stephen King used to in, in a number of writings and interviews Stephen King would talk about how he when he was young he got a big nail and he stuck it on the wall and he got a rejection he would put it on the nail and eventually he had to get a railroad spike <laughs> you know put the railroad spike on the wall and hammer his rejections onto that because the nail wasn't big enough and then eventually even the railway spike you know wasn't enough and the rejections were so heavy you know it would tear it off the wall um so that's an exposure approach right you know king is still you know disliking rejection but he's sort of you know trying to expose himself to it he was making um a game of it in that sense now another way of what looking at what king is doing another sort of thing bound up in the exposure technique and exposure is a decent technique uh is reframing it so i think sometimes uh, an author like king in this instance or people doing that kind of thing part of their reframing is uh, they're sort of almost seeing the you know people sending them rejections as adversaries you know here's my trophies you know these rejections the wall are the trophies you know i went out i fought the fight they beat me, but I, you know, live to fight another day. I'm collecting these rejections, as sort of trophies of the battles I've been in. Um, So that's one way to reframe, but I think it's ultimately not the best manner uh, because I see a lot of, I've met a lot of writers um, who have an attitude of um, conflict in that sort of sense. Like they see the publishing world, they see editors, they see publishers as people who, you know they're staffed by gatekeepers they stand between them and the things they want I don't think it's a healthy way to view the publishing industry um, for a variety of factors uh, a friend of mine was telling me I won't say who he is in case you figure out who he's talking about but everyone was telling me how well somebody that they know is complaining about uh, YA fiction uh, and or the, the publishing industry is being obsessed with YA young adult uh, fiction And they were saying like there's So few opportunities for non-YA fiction now, in their view. Um, you know, they, just, they want everything to be YA fiction. You know, they just you know like it's so hard to get published if you're not writing, you know, YA fiction. Uh, and my friend's attitude was, well, you know, that may be true, but what good does it do you to be bitter about it? and my point kind of was like yeah it's like complaining about the sun you know the sun's too bright well that may be the case uh, but what are you going to do about it Uh, i think there's a way in which the confrontational attitude of rejection um it's not that you can't do anything you can keep submitting like you know king war hero king you know with his rejections hammered to the wall like trophies um you know and not to negative about Stephen king or anything but i just think there's a a healthier more positive way to approach things because eventually of course you do break through right eventually you get that acceptance well if you've been seeing your editors as uh, adversaries now you got to work with an editor i think you're going to shoot yourself in the foot in certain ways perhaps you know and uh, i think the idea of viewing publishing as a inside outside a club and you break through and then you're inside. I think it's false in a couple of ways, but I also think it's just even if it was true it's not productive. Um, so I like to talk about reframing rejection in a very particular way. Uh, just because I don't have a lot of anxiety around rejection. like I may have a lot of anxiety in my life, but I don't have a lot of anxiety around rejection. still don't you know find it pleasant exactly but it kind of rolls off my back and a few people have commented to me over the years like how did you get comfortable with rejection like this like why does it not bother you um you know and here's the reason Uh, i managed to reframe it and i was lucky enough to reframe it when i was young Uh, so when i was 22 years old um uh, and you can read about this on my website and i'm going to read you a rejection letter i got shortly Okay. At 20, when I was 22 years old, uh, I got a rejection letter from Weird Tales uh, magazine. Uh, now I'm gonna I actually still have that rejection letter. I'm gonna put a PDF of it up online. If you can go look at it. If you go to jonathanball.com/26, so that's 26. the numerals 26, jonathanball.com/26, you can see the rejection letter I got from Weird Tales, and you can see uh, the things I'm talking about in a little mini essay how I reframed rejection so I'll read it to you but if you want to just you know see the typewritten letter and everything a nice scan of it you can go look at it at jonathanball.com 26 but as I say like one of my earliest rejection letters when I started sending work around uh, I got when I was 22 years old and it was a rejection letter that reshaped my entire thought process around rejection and in retrospect getting this rejection was foundational uh, in my career And now I want to walk you a little bit through how it blew my young mind to get this rejection and how it made me rethink how I would view rejections forever. Uh, I think most writers would do well to reframe rejection in this manner, the way that I did after receiving this letter. Uh, Since I got this letter uh, and thought about things this way, rejection causes me no anxiety at all. It does not bother me. You can send me 10 rejections a day. I mean, maybe it's disappointing in a certain sense, but I'm not stressed out about it. It doesn't really uh, upset me in any real way. Uh, but let me like read the letter to you, and then I'm going to walk you through the salient features of this Weird Tales rejection letter. So at this point, I'm going to read uh, the rejection letter. So it's from, again, it said Weird Tales. It's specifically from um, uh, the editorial horde it's signed. It's signed the editorial horde you know, for the editorial horde, George H. Sithers, Gerald Schweitzer, Carol Adams, Diane Weinstein, Robert Waters, Tim Burke, et al. And then they enclose the guidelines as well. Um, so here's what it says. Dear Jonathan, just lately we've been inundated with submissions for a contest. We finally reached your Weird Tales submission, Dial Tone. Alas, not for us. Most short stories need to establish the time and place, the setting of the story, as soon as possible in a few stories, but not this one. This uncertainty is deliberate as when the viewpoint character wakes with amnesia. In almost every story, establish the gender of the viewpoint character as quickly as possible. We did like the throwaway details, and you told the reader far too little about the protagonist's personality or motives. In our guidelines, please note the discussion of stapling and italics underlining. Invite your comments on the enclosed guidelines so that their next edition can be more helpful to the whole range of Weird Tales writers. Sincerely, and it's signed. And then they have the enclosure of the guidelines. Now I lost the guidelines, um, but uh, I do have, uh, again, this letter, and I still have my way of thinking about this letter. So when I got this letter, I noticed a few things. So once I was over the initial disappointment, uh, of having been rejected, I know it's a handful of things. So one, uh, it was composed on a typewriter. Now this was in 2002, so like I was using a computer, <laughs> you know, uh, but they were using a typewriter still. There's some typos in it. Uh, they didn't bother to correct the typos, of course, because it's too difficult on a typewriter to correct everything, uh, especially if you're just firing you know something off to a writer. Uh, it's got this strange you know, seemingly fake address on the top it's <laughs> weird tales address. i don't know at the time it what it says terminus publishing co incorporated one two three crooked lane king of prussia pennsylvania and it's got a zip code that sounds so bizarre and fake and fascinating um like this rejection letter has personality it's the first rejection that i ever received that i felt was a real rejection in a sense that it seemed unreal and bizarre (laughs) it's conformed to all of my ridiculous preconceived stereotyped hollywood notions about what a writer's rejection letter should be so already like from the second i got this rejection and kind of looked at it it just seemed strange and unreal it was exactly the kind of rejection i wanted from weird tales so this weird sort of fascination with it initially i think that's why i kind of looked at this rejection a little differently than maybe i looked at the previous ones that i had gone and why maybe i thought a bit more about it um so uh one other thing that i noticed is just says the words alas not for us so we finally reach your submission alas not for us it's so succinct and it's so neutral like it doesn't say that my story sucks even though of course it did suck right they could have said that He didn't say anything negative about the story exactly. I mean, eventually they start kind of criticizing the story a little bit. Um, But that, alas, not for us. Uh, My 22-year-old self saw those words as a revelation. Uh, There are stories for them and stories that are not for them. Uh, And if they're rejecting my short story, maybe it's not the story's fault. You know, maybe it's not their fault. Maybe it's not even my fault. Maybe it's just not for them. It's just not for us. Now of course, in this case, the story was no good. Um, It was kind of my fault in a variety, in that sense. Um, But I think a lot of times, you know, neither of these things is the case. A lot of the times it's not the story's fault, it's not your fault, it's not their fault. It just isn't for them for, you know, good reasons, bad reasons, any number of reasons. The other thing I think was very impressive in this letter, and to me it still, you know, is remarkable. Uh, When I look at it, because i since i sent this letter or since i got this letter and i sent that story to them of course like i've you know gone on to do editing i became a magazine editor for a time i sent letters like this and i never sent a letter this detailed uh, they offer no less than three concrete examples really specific examples of how my story is flawed and could be improved you know three good concrete specific examples that is uh if you've ever been an editor or been in an editor's position you'll appreciate how much work that is uh, from the point of view of somebody who is being rejected uh, or you know for somebody whose story you're not accepting Uh, like this is an incredible amount of work and feedback that's gone into this letter they clearly had an editorial meeting they clearly discussed the story at the meeting they came up with specific reasons why they didn't want the story and they came up with they wrote down things that they could have said to tell me to you know if I was going to redraft the story to improve it and so on Uh, etc now in retrospect I was too young to know this but in retrospect what I should have done is rewritten the story um, with their advice in mind and then resubmitted it now Probably they would have still rejected it. There are other issues of the story, but I, sh- I should have done that because um, they spent all this time give me, you know, the feedback. I should have spent the time of taking the feedback and then showing them that I took the feedback. Uh, even if it was ultimately just a rejection, I think the courtesy would have been nice. It would have been a nice way to kind of thank them and just kind of display that, you know, I'm taking them seriously. Maybe if I would kept submitting to Weird Tales at that time, again, uh, if I kept doing that kind of thing eventually I would have gotten published in Weird Tales you know, even, you know not with this story not with the next one maybe but eventually I could have done that if I had taken the right approach uh, but th- you know three concrete examples of how the story is flawed and can be improved that's really impressive three also they said something nice you know we did like the throwaway details um, now I don't need my ego soothed around my story but it's a nice touch um, it's nice to just say something nice. Uh, you don't always need to say something nice. I mean, I'm not the nicest person in, in, in some respects. But um, it, again, it, it just they clearly went out of their way to find uh, something in the story that they could have complimented, and they did so. Uh, it's very um, professional, and it's above and beyond uh, the call of what they could have or should have done. They also sent me their guidelines uh, and this is a really important thing to note. they sent me, they mentioned their guidelines uh, two different times and they sent me the guidelines now the reason they sent me the guidelines is because I didn't follow them properly uh, they even point that out in the letter right they say you know please note the discussion of stapling and the italics underlining in their guidelines I didn't follow the guidelines properly obviously uh, To them I look like an absolute amateur they could smell how bad I am they could tell how new I am at this they could see I wasn't careful Uh, they could steal this immediately you know from just glancing at the submission they didn't even need to read it to know that they did read it clearly because they've got really specific feedback but they would have been within their right to reject it without reading it based on its presentation if just glancing at that without looking at it, they could have told that I hadn't read the guidelines, and therefore there's almost no chance that I would have been submitting a story that they would want. Now, they did go beyond that and did read the story. Um, they even thought about it and talked about it clearly in an editorial meeting. Probably they shouldn't have. You know, Honestly, if it was me, I would have potentially rejected the story without reading it. Uh, depending on how far it's straight from the guidelines like they're kind of noting relatively minor things So I would have read that story like if it just made those mistakes, but probably I made other mistakes. They didn't mention, right? I forget cuz I lost the guidelines, but um, They knew immediately it wasn't worth their time, but they gave me their time So there's like two things to note in there one is that the guidelines uh, and this is something writers don't think about a lot sometimes what uh, guidelines are there for is to weed you out. You know, there's ways in which the guidelines are there to help with their editorial process. They have a really specific paperwork process to assess in terms of when they get a story in, here's how they deal with it, here's who they send it to, here's what they do. Um, there's very specific things that you have to do um, in the guidelines they are noted so that they can easily and, you know, cleanly move you into their editorial process. But the other thing the guidelines do is it is again an immediate signal uh, to them whether or not you have read the guidelines. You know, are you familiar uh, with what they publish and what they want? You know, are you paying attention? Are you being professional, uh, etc.? Again, they're sort of separating the professionals from the amateurs, not in the sense of you know your professional writer being paid money, who's got a career and has you know big publications, but in the sense of your mindset, you know, your approach. Um, I think about guidelines uh, for magazines and publishers, and I think about the uh, story of Van Halen and the Brown M&Ms. If you don't know that story, uh, Van Halen uh, used to have this concert rider, uh, which was to the effect that. Um, and I'll link to an article about this uh, in the show notes. So again, if you go to joanthepodd.com slash 26, I'll link to the article about the Van Halen uh, Brown M&Ms. Uh, but I'll tell you the story in brief here. So they had a writer of the concert, a contract. Their contract was hundreds of pages long, uh, just massive document. And it listed all these things that needed to happen and be done, all the equipment they needed, all the way it had to be set up for them to perform a concert. And in the contract buried somewhere was... Uh, the backstage area in the green room there must be a bowl of M&M's and there can be no brown M&M's in that bowl and this was often touted in the press as ridiculous rock star demands you know Van Halen's demanding you pick out the brown M&M's because they just don't want any brown M&M's it sounds ridiculous and absurd but actually there's a very good reason for this brown M&M's thing it's very much like the guidelines of a literary magazine in this respect Uh, Van Halen had again a very specific process, you know, in terms of putting on a concert. They were one of the first bands that toured with, did massive tours with massive amounts of equipment. Uh, And for the concert to go smoothly, you know, for all the equipment to work properly and for, I mean, the weight of this equipment and the weight of their stage show, for it not to like collapse the stage and like sink into the ground and like various things like this. They had to have very specific things figured out. Like they didn't want the stage falling down and hurting somebody. They didn't want the you know power to blow out in the middle of the concert. They didn't want a bunch of disasters to happen, right? They wanted a smooth show, and they had a very specific um, set of demands in terms of like here's how much power we need. Here's the cords we need. Here's you know this and that. We have to have this you know beam has to be present. It has to be reinforced with steel. And they had all these specifics that were laid out in that contract. Uh, and so they had some brown m&m's thing kind of hidden in there because they needed a way to very quickly uh, and cleanly figure out when they arrived at a show did the promoters read the contract did they do everything they were supposed to do Uh, and what they eventually settled on was this brown and m&m's thing so if david lee roth you know rolled into the green room and he saw the bowl of brown of m&m's and he looked through and there was a brown m&m in there somewhere he knew instantly we have to check everything if they can't get the m&m's right then they're not going to get something that matters right right you know if they don't take it because because the contract specifically said like if there's a brown m&m in this bowl, you could forfeit the entire you know the concert might get cancelled you would forfeit the fee you paid us if we cancel the concert uh, and so on and so forth like there are serious consequences in the contract to these brown mms not being there so uh again if david lee roth or you know eddie van Halen rolls in the back area they see a brown m M&M m somewhere in this bowl they know these people aren't careful enough if they're not careful enough about these brown m ms maybe they weren't careful enough about constructing the stage maybe it's going to collapse and kill a fan you know so they had to check everything at that point. They had to go line by line through all this stuff and check it all. And I, of course, ideally, they didn't want to have to do all these checks because it would you know, delay the concert by hours or maybe even force them to cancel the concert, you know, rather than put on an unsafe concert and so on. Uh, so that was a sort of, you know, in other words, it was just an indicator. You know, it was one of those things where was just if they did this wrong, they knew something else was going to have been done wrong. Just like Weird Tales, should have known and probably did know. Like, if I because I stapled it wrong, probably it was a story they couldn't publish. what probably just wasn't for them, it probably just wasn't good enough. I probably didn't have the attention to detail in description uh, as I should have had because I didn't give the attention to detail to you know whether there's a stapler or a paperclip on it, and etc. Now, I know it sounds weird and harsh to say things like that because you as a writer you think, well, you know, what does it matter whether I underlined it or use italics or whether I staple it here or there or whatever. Well, it matters because it's like the brown M&Ms. One little piece of sloppiness, like a spelling mistake or whatever, suggests that you don't take it seriously. Um, And even if you think you take it seriously, you're not taking it seriously. Even if you take what you do seriously, you're not taking what they do seriously. Uh, And so uh, it's just a reason why they should look extra careful for reasons to reject you. Uh, just like, you know, the Brown M&Ms, it's just a reason, you know, now they got to look for reasons to cancel the concert. Um, you know, maybe they don't want to, just like, you know, maybe this, this magazine doesn't want to reject you, right? Like it wants uh, to publish good work. It wants you to send, you know, no magazine editor is picking up your short story thinking, oh, gee, I hope this sucks and wastes my time. <laughs> you know, they want it to be blown away. They want it to be brilliant, um, but it's not likely. Uh, and so you know no offense but it's not likely Uh, and so like they're looking for the thing uh, and they're also looking they also know that the more junk they get through the closer they are to finding that good thing ultimately i think what i learned from this rejection overall was that they gave me a lot of their time you know they read the entire story they talk, had a committee meeting uh, in which they discussed it. They wrote a detailed letter to reject it. They wrote it on a typewriter. It was you know, physically difficult you know, even to write a letter like this. Then they sent me a copy of their guidelines. They even asked me to comment on whether or not their guidelines were clear and were making, made sense to writers like myself, to novice writers who didn't know what they were doing at the time. Included in that last sentence is a really significant assumption. Uh that maybe just maybe I had read their guidelines, but they'd made some mistake in writing the guidelines and were not plain enough for novices to comprehend. It's a very generous attitude, I think, that is kind of underlying what you know essentially I think most people would be trained to see as a negative uh you know in your face rejection. Now, since this rejection, like I say, I went on to work as an editor at a number of places. Um, and I'll admit right now I never put this much thought and time into rejection even when i had to reject my friends <laughs> even rejecting the work of my friends i never put this much work into a rejection and all in all and this is a big impression that it had on me all in all they took me seriously you know when i received this letter i was 22 years old you know people might consider me a grown-up but you know at age 22 you're adolescence you're still in adolescence in terms of brain development um, it wasn't my first rejection. I'd received a number of form rejections by this time, even some hand-scrawled comments, and nice ones by that point. I would even published a few things by this point. And you know, this wasn't even the first publication. I had published in some smaller journals, and then, you know, kind of come to weird tales. But even so, you know, I immediately saw everything that they had done, and I thought to myself, I've been looking at rejection the wrong way. You know, they're taking me seriously. They're rejecting the work, but they're taking me seriously. Uh, and i had my big brain you know explosion moment i thought to myself a rejection is professional correspondence that's they're treating me like a professional it's not uh, the way people normally look at it rejection doesn't mean uh, i'm not a real writer rejection doesn't mean you're not a real writer it actually means the opposite Uh, the thing i like to say is only real writers Get rejections. Even a form rejection, in fact, maybe even especially a form rejection, means they're treating you just like everyone else, and everyone else submitting to them is a real writer too. They've you know everybody submitting to them, including you, has done the work of writing. You know, you're real writers, you've done the work of writing. The rejection doesn't mean you're not a real writing. In fact, it means the opposite. You are the real writer. It's the confirmation that you're the real writer. Uh, the weird, like little side note of this is, if you were filing taxes as a writer uh, and you had were questioned by the government, you had to prove it. Prove you're really a writer. Um, one of the things you could use to prove it is your rejections. <laughs> so you should actually keep them. If you're you know, in case you're filing taxes and not making money as a writer, uh, or even just making some money as a writer, and they come to you and say, "Look, is your writing a real business?" Well. You could say, look, I've been collecting these rejections. I'm you know, doing the work of writing. I Maybe I'm not making money or maybe I'm not making much money. Maybe I'm showing a loss in my business, but I'm engaged in a professional activity. In other words, um, the government will accept rejections as proof that you're a real writer. The, the government cares nothing about you. Um, and yet writers get rejections and feel, oh, it means I'm not a real writer well no no I think you need to reframe that Uh, the rejection means you're a real writer Um, it's easy to forget that having your work accepted isn't your job your job is writing the editors job is to accept or reject your work Uh, so stop trying to do their job for them and don't stress out about a job that's not yours focus on your job you know writing a thing sending it out Ursa K. Le Guin uh, has a great quote, which I'm going to quote out of context. The the quote has nothing to do with this, (laughs) but it's a great uh, quote out of context, um, which is this, go on and do your work, do it well, it is all you can do. Thanks for listening, and keep writing the wrong way.